with a theological statement that forms the interpretive lens for the rest of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The statement is absolute and stands as the foundation and fountain of everything that will follow in the Bible's storyline. It begins with a beginning, a time reference to the beginning of time and history. It speaks of God as the only God and sole creator of everything. Heavens and earth is what's technically called a merism. Uh, two parts, uh, two polar opposites that uh, encompass everything. The heavens and the earth and everything in between. In other words, in the beginning, God made everything. Verses 2 and 3 then give us the means by which he made everything. Uh, verse 2, uh, uh, sorry, verse 3, uh, sorry, verse 2. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. In other words, in the beginning, God made everything by his Spirit and word. God made everything by his Spirit and word. And then the rest of the prologue unpacks for us how he did it in an orderly fashion over six days. And what this prologue gives us is order and structure. And two of the structural dimensions of God's created universe are space and time. They're both there in verse 1. The time reference in the beginning, the beginning of time, and the space reference with the heavens and the earth. The heavens is everything above in the heavenly realms, and the earth represents everything down below in the earth and everything in between. So verses 3 and following then focus in on the earth. Uh, verse 2, Now the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then from verse 3 on, uh, the focus is on the earth. And in particular, it is on three realms of space. The sky, the seas, the land. In the beginning, God formed the sky by separating the waters below and the waters above. He formed the seas and then the dry land by gathering the waters of the seas into one place and letting the dry land appear. So God formed three realms of space. You see that? Sky, sea, land. So he formed time in the beginning and then he formed space. And then he filled those spaces with creatures. He filled the seas with the great sea creatures and the fish. He filled the sky with the sun, moon, stars, and birds. And he filled the land with creeping things and livestock and then people made in his image. So God is clearly interested in space and what he fills that space with. Indeed, he is said to bless the birds that fill the air and the fish that fill the sea in verse 22. In verse 28, he blesses mankind and tells him to fill the earth. See, God's interested in filling the space that he has made. So God created space, and then he made creatures to fill the space, and then he blessed those creatures so that they might expand and multiply and fill the space that he had made, uh, the space of sky, of sea, and of land. But God did not only create space, he also created time. 
Uh, This can be seen throughout the chapter. It begins, as I said, with a time reference. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God set time in motion. He wound up the clock of world history and started it ticking. But then he divided up that time that began to tick. God began to set boundaries to the time that he made. On day one, he set the boundary of the day, verse 4 and 5. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. So daytime and nighttime were established and distinguished. So too were the bookends of each day. And there was evening and there was morning. And as I read the passage, you would have seen that repetition occur in verse 8, verse 5, verse 8, verse 13, 19, 23, 31. The phrase just keeps repeating itself like this rhythmical um, time reference that keeps coming up throughout the chapter. Now, the phrase evening and morning could be a way of marking the whole day. Uh, Since the Jews began their day in the evening... And morning was seen as a continuation of the day. It could mean one whole day from beginning of the day in the evening, as the Jews marked the beginning of the Sabbath was in the evening, uh, then to the morning, and that was one day. So that's one way of reading the phrase evening and morning. Or it could be another way of marking the whole day by speaking about the end point of the main periods of a day. So on this interpretation, evening marks the end of daytime, and there was evening at the end of day of the day, and there was morning, which marks the end of the nighttime. So evening and morning equals one day. Now, personally, I think the latter option makes most sense. Evening and morning bookend the two main periods of a whole day. But whatever interpretation you take, the rhythm of time resounds all the way through this chapter. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day, etc. Now, the order is interesting, isn't it? You would expect it to say, and there was morning, and there was evening, day one. And there was morning, and there was evening, day two. But it's the other way around. Um, As I said, it may reflect the end of God's working day. He works during the day, and then there was evening. He works during the night, and then there was morning. But I think more is going on here than just that. I think this whole chapter orientates us towards the morning, towards light, towards new life. After darkness, light. After evening, morning. Sounds like something we hear later, doesn't it? After death, resurrection. Isn't it interesting that Jesus died on a Friday afternoon? He did his work on the last day of the working week, and then there was evening. And isn't it interesting that he rose again early Sunday morning, and then there was morning, the first day of a new week full of light and life. Jesus' redemptive work is bookended by evening and morning. In other words, the drama of redemption is played out in the theater of a space-time creation 
that is deliberately marked by time and one which is orientated towards the morning, towards light, towards life. The time references continue in verse 14 to 18. Uh, in chapter 1, there are still more boundaries here. Verse 14, that there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. Now, did you notice the first purpose given for placing the sun and moon in the sky? It's to mark time. The first purpose is not to give light, but to mark time, to separate day from night, two time references, to mark signs and seasons, days and years, more time references. The sun and the moon, of course, do serve to light the earth. Verse 15 states that. But note which purpose comes first and which is given more attention. It is the giving, uh, the marking of time, not the giving of light. We often think of the sun's primary purpose is to give light. But the primary purpose cannot have been to give light. Why? Because in day one the light already existed. There was light before the sun, which even scientists today acknowledge. There is light beyond the sun, as scientists will acknowledge. So it's a bit of a non-argument to reject the consecutive order of six days in a row because the sun wasn't created until day four. The sun... According to Genesis 1, is not the source of light. Uh, it uh, uh, beholds light. It um, is the giver of light, but is not the source of light. It marks time primarily, as well as giving light. But it's not the source of all light, as day one shows us. Listen to John Calvin commenting on the words, let there be light. It is proper that the light by means of which the world was to be adorned with such excellent beauty, should be first created. And this also was the commencement of the distinction among the creatures. It did not, however, happen from inconsideration or by accident that the light preceded the sun and the moon. To nothing are we more prone than to tie down the power of God to those instruments, the agency of which he employs. The sun and moon supply us with light. And according to our notions, we so conclude this power to give light in them that if they were taken away from the world, it would seem impossible for any light to remain. Therefore, the Lord, by the very order of the creation, bears witness that God holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. Isn't that beautiful? God holds in his hand the light which he is able to impart to us without the sun and the moon. So we don't need the sun to be the source of light, though God appoints it to be that. Uh, but we can see that its primary purpose here is to mark time. Now, some might say that the fact that the sun was to mark days means that you can't have normal days before day four, hence why some prefer to what's called the literary framework interpretation of Genesis 1, where you dechronologize the chapter, you take out all the time chronology, and you um, topicalize it. You match day 1 to day 4, day 2 to day 5, day 3 to day 6. Uh, but that is to misunderstand the purpose of the sun. 
the Son was made to mark time and not create time. In chapter 1, verse 4, God creates light to separate light from darkness. In one fourteen, the Son is to mark the already existing separation between day and night in the already existing day. It's a bit like the invention of clocks. Is there a clock in this room? Uh, there, straight ahead. Okay, uh, before that clock was placed in this room, did time exist in the room? Yeah, the clock does not create time, it just marks time. And that's like the sun. The sun didn't create time. Uh, the, sun, the earth was already rotating. Uh, the sun was just given in order to mark those rotations and that time. Um, God created time in day one. The text tells us that. And he made light, and that light was used to create two time periods, day and night. So it's more than reasonable for there to be normal 24-hour days before there was a sun that could mark such time-specific days because the earth was already rotating. And when he made the sun to mark time, it was just like putting a clock in a room where time already existed. Now, because I know you've come to the weekend just for the purpose of knowing what do we do with the days of creation, Let me actually have a little excursus here and make a few comments on the days of creation. Are these six ordinary days, or are they symbolic, or are they analogical? Uh, What kind of days are they? Uh, Very sadly, often when people preach, ministers teach on this passage, they um, ignore this, or they, um, uh, what's the word? Sidestep, that's the phrase I'm looking for. They duck it. Okay, well, I'm not going to duck it. Uh, Here we go. Here's some reasons why I think these are ordinary days. So let me just make some comments on the word day. The Hebrew is yom. Uh, That doesn't make any um, contribution to the argument, but it sounds good. Okay, the Hebrew is yom. Okay, the first use of yom in Genesis is in verse 5. It's um, God called the light day. And here in verse 5, we're introduced to the first use. And you see, it's not a normal 24-hour day. It's a reference to a time period within a day. It's daytime is really what it refers to. And night uh, refers to nighttime. So you've got daytime and nighttime. So the very first use of yom, of day in Genesis, is not to a 24-hour day. It's to daytime. And then at the end of verse 5, you do have the first use of an ordinary day, more evening, and there is morning, the first day. Okay, so there's the ordinary use of the word day at the end of verse 5. Why do I say it's the ordinary use? Well, you have evening and morning, uh, which constitute a day. You also have the number of days, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, day 7. Okay, so you've got those things that are suggesting it's an ordinary day. Um, The word day is used 119 times in the Pentateuch, in the first five books of the Bible. And in every single case, when it has a uh, numerical adjective, first day, second day, day one, day two, um, it is a literal day. Okay, And then in Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, and 31, verse 17, we have um, Moses telling us that in six days God... Uh, made the earth and then rested on the Sabbath day. So you have this affirmation of it being a seven-day week. 
And what do those seven days mean to Israelites in the ancient world? They just mean an ordinary day. Uh, Man's work week is then patterned after God's work week, as I said from Exodus 20 and 31. Um, There are 702 instances of plural days, uh, yamim, in the Old Testament, and every single one of them means a literal day. So when you then read about the six days God made the earth in Exodus 20, verse 11, or 31, 17, it's unlikely that those two occurrences are exceptions to the 700 other cases where the word days literally means um, a literal day. And then there is a third use of the word day uh, in chapter 2, verse 4. If you just flick forward, You see, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day, in the yom, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Here's a third use of the word day. It's not referring to a literal day because now it's talking about his making the heavens and the earth and everything in them, which chapter 1 just told us took six days. So here is a use of day, which means in the moment, in the event, in the occasion, in the day of. Okay, we do that in English, don't we? Um, the, the day of victory, okay, in some war, which mightn't have been one particular day, might have been a period of time, um, and the same in Hebrew. So we have three uses of the word day in Genesis 1. You've got daytime, you have ordinary day, and then you have a moment, an occasion, uh, an event. So which is it in regards to day one, day two, day three, day four? Well, Uh, When it is used, yom, with an ordinal number in succession, day one, day two, day three, with evening and morning, uh, I think there's no other way to read it but as an ordinary day. Uh, James Barr, who was the Regis Professor of Hebrew at Oxford University, no friend to evangelicals, said the only people who have problem, the only people who have a problem with the Hebrew of Genesis 1 are evangelicals. Uh, The liberals read it and say the Hebrew means an ordinary day. It's just that God didn't do it like that, but that's what the text says. The fundamentalists say it means an ordinary day because that's what the text says and it's God's word. He said the only people who have a problem with it are evangelicals, which I think is a very perceptive comment. Uh, And I think we as evangelicals care a little too much what the academy and what scientists think and less about what the text actually says. So there you go. There's my excursus on the days of creation. I think these are ordinary days. So, to go back to those two structural uh, markers in this chapter, in the prologue, Genesis 1 speaks of the forming and filling of space and the beginning and boundaries of time. Forming and filling of space and beginning and boundaries of time. Integral to God's creating work in Genesis 1 is space and time. Francis Schaeffer said that history is the warp and woof of space and time. The fabric of history is the interweaving of space and time. I think it's a great quote. We were created in the image of God as space-time creatures, and we live out our life in a space-time framework. Here we are at Castlewell and Castle in the space of County Down, Northern Ireland, in Northern Ireland, uh, on the island of Ireland, um, 
on planet Earth. Here we are living out our lives in a space-time continuum because that's how God made us, image bearers of his as space-time creatures, which means that time, as well as space, but I want to focus on time, matters. Time matters. Okay? Um, And we see God's stress on the importance of time as we come to the climax of the prologue in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. You have six consecutive days, and then you have this climax on the seventh day, on the Sabbath. And these three verses may be placed in a new chapter in our English Bibles, but they really belong to chapter 1, to the opening prologue, to the logic and flow of this first chapter. Uh, And as I said, it brings the prologue to its climax. And you can see the climax, not just in the placement of chapter 2, 1 to 3 at the end of the prologue, but also uh, in its content. Notice that we're twice told that God finished the work of creation, verse 1 and 2. Notice the reference to the hosts and verse 1, and all the host of them, that is the sun, the moon, the stars, the time markers. And then we're told twice that he rested from his work, verse 2, verse 3. Um, both verbs, uh, finished and rested, convey the sense of completion. And then notice there is a five-fold reference to the seventh day, the end of a working week. Um, verse 2, there's two references. Verse 3, and then in verse 3, and made it the seventh day, because on it, seventh day, God rested from all his work. Do you see how time-heavy, how time-laden these three verses are. Five times we're told about the seventh day. And then we're told about two things that God does to this day, which are rather unique. He blesses it, verse 3, and sanctifies it, makes it holy. Now in verse 22 of chapter 1, God blessed the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. In chapter 128, he blessed mankind. But now here we have God blessing a time period. Okay, I mean, just think about that. Blessing the birds and the Fish, we understand that. Hopes they'll multiply. Blesses mankind, we get that. Hopes they'll multiply, have dominion. But blessing a period of time. What does he want the time to do? To multiply? Um, It's quite unique, isn't it? And then there's the sanctification of the day. He doesn't just bless the day. He sets it apart. And the reason for sanctifying it is because on it, verse 3, that's emphatic in the Hebrew, because on it, God rested from all his work. Some people like to say every day is holy to God. Every day is the Lord's day. And when they say that, I want to ask them, have they ever read Genesis chapter 2, verse 3? Because you couldn't get a clearer picture of God setting apart one day in distinction from the first six now, does that mean the other days of creation are not important to him? No, of course not. Does that mean they're, they're not holy in some sense? No, they are. They're holy to the Lord. But does that mean the Sabbath day is no different to all the other days? No, of course not. Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, he blesses the seventh day. He doesn't bless days 1 to 6. He blesses the seventh day and sets it apart, which means that the Sabbath day is the climax of the creation week. The placement of these verses, the content of these verses, point in the direction that this is a unique, special day. 
The question is, well, what does it mean? Well, it would be tempting to make an application straight to ourselves, but you'll notice there is no application in the passage for Adam. He's not directly commanded or explicitly told to keep the Sabbath. Verse 3 starts to move implicitly in that direction, blessing it and making it holy. Um, And Exodus 20 bases its command on Genesis, where Moses says, remember the Sabbath. He doesn't say keep the Sabbath. He says, remember the Sabbath, which means it's already in operation. But man's keeping of the Sabbath is not the primary purpose of these verses. Listen to uh, Gerhardus Voss. He was professor at Princeton Seminary in America. Uh, Here's what he said about the primary significance of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is not, in the first place, a means of advancing religion. It has its main significance, apart from that, in pointing forward to the eternal issues of life and history. The Sabbath, says Voss, points forward to the eternal issues of life and history. Um, And what I want you to see is the Sabbath, what, what Voss is getting at there is that the Sabbath is not primarily a command, but a picture, a symbol of something else. Uh, The seventh day, later called the Sabbath, is a pattern for our present life. I'll come to that in a moment. But we must first see it not as a pattern for our present life, but a picture of of our future life. A picture of our future life. In Genesis 2, the Sabbath is indicative before it is imperative. Another way of putting that is the sacrament, the Sabbath is first a sacrament, before it is a commandment. The Sabbath is first a sacrament, a sign, a symbol, before it is a commandment. It's first a sign before it's a command, a picture before it's a pattern. And that's what I want us to see, the Sabbath as picture and the Sabbath as pattern. So, uh, two points here. The first, the Sabbath is a picture of our future life. We await rest. The Sabbath is a picture of our future life. We await rest. Just think about the sequence of the days or what the sequence shows. You have the rhythmical succession of six days of work followed by a day of rest week after week, which teaches us that history is linear. Okay? Of course, linear history unfolds in cycles. We see uh, that in the days, the weeks, the years that the sun, moon mark for us. But history moves in cycles from A to B, from beginning of time towards an end point. And the end point of the creation week is the Sabbath. Precisely because it is the seventh day of rest, following six days of work, the Sabbath teaches us that history has a goal. It's going somewhere. And that goal is rest. That is where God is taking this new creation towards a Sabbath rest. God moves history towards a Sabbath. Now, we mustn't think that rest here simply means cessation from work or recovery from fatigue. Uh, Its meaning here is positive, not negative. It relates to rest after the consummation of work. It's connected with joy and satisfaction of reflecting on and enjoying a finished work. If I can speak of God in um, 
anthropomorphic terms for a moment, in human terms. On the Sabbath, God didn't take a nap on his bed or sit on his throne staring at the wall, uh, resting, okay, good Northern Irish Sabbath, okay, no, he took a stroll through his creation, admired it, and enjoyed his finished work of creation in the flowers and the trees, in the rivers and the mountains and the birds and the fish and the animals. On the Sabbath, God didn't say, well, I'll just have to wait until Sunday morning. So think of the Jewish week. The Sabbath was a Saturday. He wasn't thinking, well, I'm just going to have to wait till Sunday morning before I can enjoy what I've made because today I'm supposed to sit and do nothing. Okay? No, the Sabbath was about enjoying the goodness of what he had made. It was not a day of passive retirement but of active enjoyment. The Sabbath was all about God enjoying the consummation of this perfect creation. In this regard, the Sabbath was a symbol of what the world to come was to be like, or better, of what life in the world to come was to be like. The Sabbath was a finale of the symphony of God's creating work. The first week of history was a Sabbath-crowned week, It involved the movement towards rest, enjoyment, satisfaction. That's the goal of history. But these uh, verses indicate more than that it was just a movement towards rest. Uh, The goal was a movement towards eternal rest. Eternal rest. Did you notice what's missing in verses 1 to 3 when it speaks about the seventh day? Evening and morning. For six days, we've had that rhythmical statement, and there was evening and there was morning. But when it comes to the seventh day, uh, those uh, bookends of the day are gone. And I think that's because symbolically, the normal boundaries of the day are removed, because this day was to point not just to a rest of a limited time, but to a rest of an eternal time, an eternal rest, eternal life. On the seventh day, God entered into his eternal rest from his creating work. He was never going to create anything again. Okay, He entered an eternal rest. He didn't go back to creating work on Sunday morning. If you stay in the Jewish week, Saturday's the Sabbath. He didn't return to work on Sunday morning. He entered an eternal rest. And in that sense, the day is symbolic for us. It is symbolic of an eternal rest. Now, I'm not saying that it wasn't in history a normal day. Okay, Uh, I think the seventh day was a normal day. The sun rose, the sun set, and then the next day the sun rose again. What I think is going on here is that it is a normal day that is presented to us in this piece of literature as an eternal day. It's a sacrament, it's a sign, it's pointing beyond itself to the eternal rest. So that's what I think uh, is going on here. It's a normal day, but pointing beyond, and it's pointed to us, uh, pointing us to an eternal rest because it drops off the evening and the morning time boundaries. This fits with how the book of Hebrews explains uh, the rest. You remember as Ben uh, read to us, Hebrews chapter 4, if you just look at Hebrews 4 verse 9, <clears throat> Hebrews 4 verse 9 and 10, the writer of Hebrews says, Chapter 4, verse 9, So then, there remains 
a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. But it's verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. You see the parallels? The first Sabbath rest at creation when God rested from his works becomes the picture of the eternal Sabbath rest for us. So the Sabbath is first thoroughly sacramental. You know what I mean by sacrament? It's a sign, a symbol. Uh, We have the sacrament of baptism. We have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Physical uh, elements, water, bread, wine, that actually point beyond themselves to something. Water to the cleansing that we receive in Christ. Uh, Bread and wine to his body and blood given for us. Well, so too with the Sabbath. Uh, It points beyond itself to this eternal rest. So that's the first thing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a picture of our future life. We await rest. Number two, the Sabbath is a pattern for our present life. We practice rest. The Sabbath is a pattern for our present life. We practice rest, verse 3. So God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work that he had done in creation. The idea of the Sabbath becoming a pattern for our lives is implied in the phrase, made it holy. The reason God made the Sabbath day holy was because he rested on it. And this is what is picked up in the Ten Commandments when Moses says to Israel, remember the Sabbath. Remember this one day in seven to keep it holy to the Lord. Again, notice the commandment does not say keep the Sabbath. It says remember the Sabbath to keep it holy, which means that the command to keep the Sabbath does not originate with Moses at Sinai, but with God at creation. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance, not a mosaic ordinance. Its principle, therefore, continues until the end of history. Now, in the next two talks, we'll see how God stitches different things into his creation order, like work and marriage. But I want to show you or suggest to you that Sabbath is stitched into the very fabric of life on this earth. God is stitched into the order of creation, work and marriage, and he's also stitched in the idea of a Sabbath. And if we don't believe work and marriage are set aside by the new covenant, then why should we think that the Sabbath is set aside in the new covenant? Just as work and marriage are embedded in the fabric of our humanity, so too is Sabbath rest. I mean, just try working seven days a week for three weeks in a row and see how you go. That's not my phone, is it? I thought that was maybe my wake-up time or something in Philadelphia. Uh, So the experience of not taking a day off just tells us that we were made to be creatures who need to practice rest. Every week, God reminds us that we need rest. Uh, But remember, the day is not just for rest. It's also a day for God. It's to be holy to him. It's to be set apart for him. One of the ways that we express that holy to the Lord aspect of the Sabbath day is by gathering for worship on that day. In Leviticus 23, verse 3, Moses calls the Sabbath day uh, a day of holy convocation, a day of holy gathering of God's people. In the New Testament, the church gathered together on the Lord's day. 
But as we know, that was not the Jewish Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, but it was the eighth day of a new week. So remember, circumcision was done on the eighth day. What's the eighth day in the Jewish calendar? It's the first day of a new week. Circumcision spoke of a new beginning. Uh, and it's the same with the Lord's Day. There was a change in the calendar. And it, Jesus rose on the eighth day, the first day of a new week. And so that's now the new Christian Sabbath. There was a change because of what Christ did in his work. In the Old Testament, the pattern was work for six days, and then you get a day off. Jesus came, he did the work for us, and he gives to us rest. And so how do you start your week? Not on a Monday, but a Sunday. You start with a day of rest, and then you work. Okay, that's how things have changed, because of Jesus' redemptive work. Uh, Again, I've mentioned how his redemptive work follows these uh, boundaries of time. Remember, he died on a Friday. Think of the Jewish week, last day of a working week. He died on a Friday afternoon, and then there was evening. And he died just before the end of that last day. As the Sabbath approached, um, Jesus uh, then on the cross said, it is finished at the beginning of the Sabbath day. He said, it is finished. And then he entered into his Sabbath rest. He was buried on a Friday evening in a new tomb. Now, we would expect him to rise the next morning, wouldn't we? On the morning of the Sabbath. But he doesn't. He slept through the Sabbath in his death. And he rose after the Sabbath on the first day of a new week. Uh, why didn't he rise on the Jewish Sabbath? Wouldn't that have been typologically significant? A day of rest. Jesus rises to bring us rest. So why Sunday? Well, because Jesus inaugurated a new world order. A new world order was inaugurated in his resurrection. And the first day of the new week became the Sabbath. Uh, Gerhardus Voss puts it well. Christ entered upon the rest of his new eternal life on the first day of the week, so that the Jewish Sabbath was buried in his grave. We are to re receive the Sabbath, not from the hand of Moses, but from the hand of Christ. His life, death, resurrection was let nothing less than the beginning of a new creation. And in this new world order, a new Sabbath day was established. The Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. And that's why Jesus can come to us and say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Why? Because he is Lord of the Sabbath, a new Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. He gives eternal rest. He gives us what the first Sabbath was a picture of, eternal rest. So that is why we meet for worship on Sundays and not Saturdays. But the point is that on this new day, the Sabbath day, it remains a pattern for our present lives. We practice rest and worship. Uh, so it's a picture of our future life and a pattern for our present life. Now I want to think, I think we all get the worship bit, um, right? Everyone here goes to church on a Sunday, yeah? I think we get that. But what about the rest bit? Do we really understand what that involves? Uh, remember, rest doesn't mean cessation from work or recovery from fatigue. It didn't involve God staring at the four walls of heaven between his naps on his throne on his Sabbath. It involved him enjoying what it was that he had made. 
Uh, for Adam, in his godlike state, Sabbath rest would have enjoyed, would have been about enjoying the good things of a perfect world. It would have involved eating and drinking the best from the garden of paradise that God had given him. It would have involved enjoying the outdoors of this created world that God had placed, in it, placed him in. It would have involved close communion with his wife. What day did Adam get married on? A Friday. Okay? And their Sabbath begun began uh, that night, the next day. So the Sabbath for Adam and Eve was a very enjoyable day. It was their beginning of their honeymoon. And that sense of the enjoyment of the good things that God gives us did not change for Israel. We sometimes forget the context of the Ten Commandments. When God told Israel to take a day off, one day a week, at Mount Sinai, what was their history? 400 years of slavery. They hadn't had a day off for 400 years. Every day of their lives, they couldn't decide what to do whenever they wanted. They were to make bricks every day of their life. And here was God commanding them to take a day off. And what do you think they did on their days off? Well, I think they probably enjoyed doing some of the things they'd never been able to do uh, on their day off. Uh, feasting, fellowshipping with each other, playing with their children, uh, enjoying their Sabbath. Basically, the Sabbath was a party. It was a party. And we know it was a party because in Leviticus 23, the Sabbath day was placed among the feasts of Israel. It was placed among the feasts of Israel. The Sabbath was to be a feast, not a funeral. Now, as you know, I grew up in Northern Ireland and um, sadly, in some traditions here, uh, Sundays feel more like a funeral in Egypt than a feast in Eden. Um, <clears throat> I remember hearing that in Northern Ireland years ago in the parks, they used to wind the swings up on a Saturday night so that the children couldn't reach up and swing on a Sunday. Um, and uh, there's the great story, not in Northern Ireland, on the Isle of Lewis, which is a very conservative ch Free Church of Scotland, island off Scotland, where uh, a visiting preacher goes to preach, and after church he goes for a walk, he finds a rowing boat, and uh, he goes out for a bit of a row. As he's coming back in, one of the women of the church comes down to see him as he's bringing the boat back in, and she says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm... I'm having a row. And she says, yeah, don't you know it's the Sabbath? And he said, didn't Jesus get into a boat on the Sabbath? And she said, not in the Isle of Lewis, he didn't. <laughs> <clears throat> and sometimes uh, our Sundays can feel a bit like that. Uh, I remember reading a magazine explaining what this church tradition, what they do on the Sabbath day. And the, the writer said, I'm not going to tell you what we I'm not going to tell you to keep the Sabbath day. I'm just going to tell you what we do on the Sabbath and then make you jealous that you don't keep it. And then he spoke about the roast dinner, the best wine, the ice cream, the games for the kids. And as I read the article, I thought, I'd love to go to his house for Sunday. Um, and it's always stayed with me. So Jackie and I, we've tried to ensure that Sundays, the Lord's Day, is the best day of the week for Ben. Uh, we want Ben to grow up loving his Sundays, not dreading them. And so we've taught Ben a little catechism. 
uh, on a Sunday morning, I say to Ben, Ben, what day is it? And he says, it's the Lord's Day. And I say, Ben, what do we do on the Lord's Day? And he says, we eat pancakes. (laughs) And I say, that's right, Ben. And then where do we go? To church. And what do we do in church? We worship the triune God. And then I say, and who do we get to do that with? And he says, with Layla, his little sister who is in heaven. We, We join with our daughter and sister for that brief hour. And that is what the Sabbath is about. It's a taste of heaven. We feast like we're in heaven. We go to church, and as the church militant on earth, we join the church triumphant in heaven, and together with angels and archangels, with that great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews 12 speaks about, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with Mary and Bathsheba and Ruth and Rahab, we join with the saints above, we join with the saints across the earth, and we worship our great God. That's what Sunday is about. That's what the Sabbath is about. And it should be celebrated with a feast uh, in Eden, not a funeral in Egypt. And once we grasp the the picture of what the Sabbath points us to, well, then embracing the pattern is not really a bondage, but a delight. So that's how the Bible story begins with a new creation entering a Sabbath rest. And we'll pick up the story uh, tomorrow in chapter 2, verse 4. Let me pray for us, then we'll have a moment of quiet, and then we'll sing. Father, we ask that this weekend, uh, what we know not, you would teach us,